This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. I looked out at the confused faces of the audience and sighed. I know I wasn't telling quite the story that they'd expected to hear. They were waiting to hear about my triumphant victory over cancer. And indeed, I had beat cancer and was deeply grateful and proud to have done so. But I also live with what are called late effects or the leftovers of the treatment, all the things that you deal with as chronic health conditions afterward. And so my message to them, to the audience that day was, it's complicated. It's great. I love uh, to be here. I love to be able to talk about things, but I'm not going to tell you the, the victorious narrative. I'm going to tell you what really happened, which is that since I survived cancer almost 30 years ago, I've dealt with one health challenge after another. And that was not the message they were expecting to hear that day. Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside the healthcare system. In this podcast, we invite you, the listener, to hear the stories of clinicians, other healthcare professionals, loved ones, patients, and other caregivers about how they have navigated through the U.S. healthcare system, and they offer tips and insights for the rest of us. I am Nicole Deffenbaugh, and I am excited to have Dr. Laura Ellingson here today on our podcast. She's a professor of communication at Santa Clara University, and she is going to be talking with us about cancer survivorship. So welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Okay, so you you have been invited to speak at this engagement. Is that what was going on? And and there were expectations from the organization and from the people about what you were going to talk about? Yeah, I'm occasionally asked to come and be a representative um, oh. for various organizations of how many people now survive their cancer battle, right? It's always framed as a victory over the dreaded war that is cancer. And in some ways, that's a really good way to understand what happens. Uh, but in some ways, it's not. The organization had expected me to talk about how happy I was to have survived and how difficult having cancer and being treated for cancer is, but they then expected to wrap up with a happily ever after ending. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really bothers me is that having survived almost 30 years past my cancer diagnosis, I know that the happily ever after for the vast majority of cancer survivors is a myth. We are real regular people just like everybody else and we have chronic conditions that are caused by radiation, chemotherapy, surgery and other kinds of complications and treatments and medications that are given to cancer survivors. So the dominant message that allows cancer organizations and other kinds of nonprofits and hospitals and other truly well-intentioned people to, to raise money, to raise awareness, to build community, the message that they want to hear is that cancer is terrible. Mm -hmm. And I agree. And then there's only two allowed endings to the terrible cancer story. One is the triumphant victory over cancer which should be celebrated and then should be framed as that's the end of the story. Now I'm a happy survivor. Mm -hmm. The other alternative ending is the tragic death. Mm 
And indeed, it is a tragedy. We've all lost loved ones, friends, neighbors, husbands, wives, partners, friends, kids, and grandparents. It's really hard to watch people die of cancer, and it happens all the time. 80% of children survive now after a cancer diagnosis, but that 20% is tens of thousands of kids a year who die. And we don't want to hear about that part, but we're at least willing to hear that these tragic deaths are motivation for raising money, raising awareness, and uh, increasing research funding, right? Mm -hmm. Really getting out there and find that cure is the message. And mm -hmm. I'm not against either of those kinds of stories because those are true. Some people survive cancer and are very happy. Some people tragically are lost to cancer, and that is very sad. The problem is that there's a third story, and it's one that I've studied as a researcher in health communication, as well as living it myself and reading about survivorship research. When I survived cancer almost 30 years ago, we didn't have a, the word survivorship. We had mm -hmm. cancer survivor, you're a survivor, that's good. But the idea that the story continued even slightly after that last visit with the doctor simply didn't exist. We now have decades, a few couple decades anyway, two to three decades of research on what happens after the treatment stops. And unfortunately, a lot of it is not good. Mm. There are severe physical, emotional or psychological and cognitive impairments that can result from chemotherapy and radiation. Yeah, and I wanted you to tell a little bit. So we're, we want to get into this um, a lot more, and I and I definitely want to dive into um, the fact that we. It sounds like we either have a, a tragedy or a triumph story, right? So very similar to what we see in the movies, right? The two, right. the couple comes together, they live happily ever after, but we never know what happens after they get together. We never right. see the fights. We never see, you know, the challenges that they face. But um, I would love for the listeners to hear a little bit of your story, sort of um, a little. And, and it's interesting when I ask this question, I find myself hesitating, right? So how, how are you going to frame your cancer story um, and letting us know? Because we, we already know now it doesn't end either in triumph or tragedy. There's something in between. But could you give us a little bit about who you are in yeah, your story? Absolutely. Let me back up a little bit. Um, when I was 20 years old and a sophomore in college at the University of Vermont, I was bothered by a lot of knee pain. My right knee kept hurting all that fall. And I tried to brush it off and ignore it. And I went in to see the doctor finally because the pain had gotten so bad and it was so unusual. And they treated me for flat feet, which indeed I do have. That <laughs> um, after I was treated for flat feet for a few months, somebody decided that we needed to do some further tests. And it was very clear that there was something much more major wrong. And um, that February, I was diagnosed with what's called osteosarcoma, which is a form of bone cancer. It was in um, my right femur, which is my thigh bone, and it was just above my knee. So the pain that I was feeling uh, was, was radiating. I was experiencing it in my knee, which was really fooling everybody into thinking that I just had somehow irritated the, the tendons or ligaments or bones um, in my knee. Instead, I had a tumor. I was then sent to Boston for major uh, surgery and, and chemotherapy. And at the time, the major treatments or common treatments included amputation, but they'd also for several years been pioneering a new thing called 
limb salvaging. And as a scared 20 year old, I immediately decided that's what I wanted. If they could keep my leg, that's what I absolutely wanted to get in line for. So I had six chemotherapy treatments, very high dose toxic stuff that required me to be in the hospital for two and a half days each time I had the treatment. Um, then they did surgery and they removed about half of my femur and replaced it with a donor bone and some plates and some screws and sewed me back up. I went back to having chemotherapy. Unfortunately, that summer I developed a really serious complication, which was a serious staph infection. And I ended up, after several surgeries of trying to fix things, having to have that implant removed with a, a temporary put in until I was done with another several months of this high-dose chemotherapy. Um, once I finally finished the chemotherapy in, in May of 1991, I had a new, uh, it's called an allograft, a new bone graft put in. At that point, I had muscle grafts and skin graft as well, um, and a lot of scar tissue and extensive damage from all the surgery they'd had to do that they hadn't planned on. They ended up being able to get my leg functioning, but it was definitely not an ideal situation. I already was showing signs of arthritis and various problems, but I graduated from college. I went on with my life. I met the love of my life and got married um, uh, and was uh, started a career, decided to go back to graduate school. And unfortunately, about uh, 10 years after my diagnosis, so... Um, about uh, eight years after my treatment had concluded, I had such deteriorating function in my leg. It only bent about 80 degrees, so less than a right angle, and uh, the pain was excruciating. And it started mm -hmm. doing this very bad thing where it would lock while I was sitting, and I couldn't straighten it up. Um, I was taking a lot of anti very serious prescription anti-inflammatories, and I was experiencing a lot of pain. And um, I decided to, they did a, um, an orthoscopic uh, surgery on my knee to try to sort of clean things out in there and see if that wouldn't help. It did not help. I then had a knee replacement mm -hmm. um, surgery uh, onto the graft that I already had, the bone graft. So that was serious and, and problematic, but we decided to give it a try anyway. A year later, all the ligaments in my knee failed, mm -hmm. and I had yet another knee replacement. This pattern of having to have surgery um, was repeated twice more with emergency surgeries and having to have the leg um, uh, disassembled with a temporary put in, six weeks of IV antibiotics followed by more surgery, more wow. physical rehab. We did this over and over again until in, uh, in 19, uh, sorry, in 2008, I declared that I had had enough. I, I met with my doctor. We were in yet another cir uh, circumstance where my leg had had to have emergency surgery and uh, yet another staph infection had started and uh, my knee had deteriorated again. I was really having trouble walking and my surgeon looked me in the eye and he said, well, it would not yet be unethical for me to reconstruct your leg. And my partner said, that's it. That's all you've got. It wouldn't be unethical. And he said, that's all I can say. Uh, you'll be back here within the next two years in exactly the same situation, having to go through exactly the same things and facing a life-threatening staph infection. And so my partner and I and my surgeon together decided to have my leg amputated 
Um, my surgeon did it and he spent a lot of time extricating all the metal and screws they put in there so that I would have as long, um, they call it a residual limb slang word of course is a stump. Um, and they, to keep it as long as possible so that I'd have as much control over a prosthesis and silly me, even though this wasn't the happily ever after I had longed for, I thought, well, okay, now we're finally done. The pain mm. is done. The suffering is done. All the surgeries are done. We're going to be set. I had no idea what it was like to live with an above-knee amputation. It is absolutely not done. I have such serious phantom limb pain that I am on serious painkillers for that, which have a lot of side effects, which require other medication to control the side effects of. Living with a above-knee amputation means that the socket, the part that keeps my leg, still a, my prosthetic leg attached to what's left of my leg, doesn't fit correctly if I gain or lose so much as a pound or two, or if I have Japanese food, which I love, mm -hmm. and have too much sodium, my leglet will swell up, and my prosthetic doesn't fit. I've had all kinds of problems with skin breakdown, mm -hmm. um, the skin that is kept enclosed in, um, uh, you know, this, this high-tech covering. It's made out of uh, various kinds of plastic and epoxies and, and um things and it, just trying to keep that on my leg all day causes my skin to get very irritated. I'm also uh, hurt my back try, trying to walk with the prosthetics. So mm -hmm. it, it has been very challenging and it has helped me to understand that there is, except for death, there is no end to the story. I will always be a cancer survivor. I'll always be proud that I survived. I'll also be deeply grateful that I survived. It has helped me understand how important health insurance is and to make me terrified for people who are facing my circumstances who don't have it. And prior to the Affordable Care Act, many amputees and, and many cancer survivors struggled to get health insurance because of the pre-existing clauses that many insurance companies have in which the current government administration is trying to roll back protections for. They're trying to allow insurance companies, again, to exclude you. Cancer is a pre-existing condition for the rest of your life. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I love my life, but I'm also realistic about the many complications that I face living after cancer. So I want to I wanna first thank you for sharing your story um, and the fact that you provide us with a spectrum of challenges and triumphs, right, and tragedies. So it wasn't yep. a tragedy, which, right. you know, would be the worst of tragedies, and yet you hadn't, so let's, let's recap, how many surgeries and how many staph infections did you have total? Do you know the number? So I ended up with 17 surgeries. It was supposed to be two. Yeah. I ended up with 17. I ended up with four life-threatening staph infections. Uh, and the last one was a combination of staph and strep um, in my bone. Um, and I ended up with just, I can't even count number of side effects that result from various kinds of pain medications, from the antibiotics. Any woman knows who's had IV antibiotics that that kills off the good bacteria in your reproductive system, leading to things like uh, chronic uh, yeast infections and uh, UTIs and other kinds of things that happen when you mess with your body's natural healthy bacteria. Um, the pain medication causes things like chronic constipation and dry mouth, which is very bad for your teeth. So that causes all kinds of problems with my gums and my teeth. Um, it also has really affected me cognitively 
And as a, I got my PhD after my treatment, so I am very lucky. There's actually, when I was in college and having chemotherapy, there was no medical evidence of what's called chemo brain or sometimes chemo fog, but it's a real live thing. I thought I was just tired and stressed out, right? I thought I just wasn't handling things as a real, you know, really good cancer survivor would handle them. But that wasn't true. The cognitive impairment that I suffered the inability to think clearly and to focus is we now know caused by chemotherapy. And I am very grateful that the level of impairment that I was left with did not keep me from being able to go to, to graduates, to finish college, to go to graduate school twice. I actually um, love school uh, (laughs) much better than working. I have two master's degrees, a graduate certificate in women's studies and a PhD. So obviously my cognitive impairment was quite moderate. However, after developing phantom pain, you have to be treated with a whole different class of pain medications. They're neuropathic ones. So Mm -hmm. the same ones that if you had diabetic neuropathy or um, the kind of neuropathy that's caused by radiation, which thankfully I didn't have, um, but a lot of my participants in my research have had, it causes muscle breakdown and other kinds of tissue and bone breakdown. Um, One of my participants, for example, is paralyzed from the waist down because he had radiation on his lungs and it Mm -hmm. affected his spine. It was too close to his spine and they couldn't prevent the rapid deterioration of his spine. Um, And so these kinds of side effects, the, the medications that I take for this neuropathic pain, which is for lack of a better word, what the category that phantom pain falls in. It's a terrible burning, and it feels like needles, and it feels like um, a, a sort of a terrible squeezing pressure and pins and needles and those kinds of feelings um, is treated with drugs that cause me to have um, aphasia. I have trouble coming up, you know, the tip of the tongue phenomenon, uh-huh. but magnetized many times over. I often can't come up with the right word. Um, that I'm teaching, uh, searching for, and that's um, that's very challenging uh, when you are a teacher and a person who gives lectures, um, a person who you know uh, does research and and wants to be part of uh, you know my public life and my career. Um, those things are are very challenging. That is, I, I also want to add one of the best things that came out of having cancer. Um, Despite my my very real challenges and frustrations, I never in a million years would have studied health communication. I wouldn't have studied doctor-patient communication. I wouldn't have studied how healthcare professionals, such as uh, doctors and nurse practitioners, registered dietitians, clinical social workers, clinical pharmacists, how all those different team members have to work together to help people with serious diagnoses. I started studying these things because I had lived them and I seriously wanted and still want to make the world better. I want people who live through and past cancer and their loved ones to have better communication. I, I just asked myself, why does it go so well? Sometimes with doctors, nurses, any kind of healthcare professionals, even the paraprofessional technicians, like the people who take your blood, right? Mm -hmm. Or the people who administer the x-rays. Those kinds of people are also a big part of my ongoing life. My prosthetist has to grope my groin on a pretty regular basis because when you're an above knee amputee, the amputee, the amputation 
fittings for, for the prosthetic have to come all the way up to um, your ischium, which is part of your pelvis, and they have to deal with your the skin in your groin and trying not to irritate that. And so my prosthetist and I have to have really good communication so that I know what I um, what's what things she needs to know about in order to treat me and what things I need to know about in order to help her by giving her the information that she needs to guide my choices and for us to make to do, to do joint decision making. We're we're at the halfway point and I I want to continue in just a minute to go with the clinicians you're talking about because so there's some really rich information you're providing about good examples of effective communication and the relationships that you have with the clinicians. I want to go back for just a minute Thinking and, and just let our listeners know we're on Skype, so you hear some cat noises and, and uh, Arena just went off. No worries. So just want everyone to know I've had my dog in uh, make some noises in the past. So we've got other uh, other pets around. Um, as you told your story, I couldn't help but think about what the reaction might be. As you were explaining your surgeries and your staph infection, I had this overwhelming desire to say, "But but you you're cancer free, right?" But, right. but that's that you know, and I and I wonder is that sort of the reaction that people are waiting for? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been through a lot, but you lived, right? Okay, yay. Then the crowd goes crazy and everyone claps because exactly. you're a survivor, right? Um, and then I think, you know, I can hear someone say, and this is a legitimate question. So should we not be glad for for the fact that people are living and so what, what should, how should we reframe the rhetoric around survivorship? Um, and I can hear people say we're trying to offer hope for those who are going through cancer. Look, right. you can survive. So then the question is, we're sort of stuck in this like rhetorical conundrum. You know, right. we want to offer hope and, and the triumph of surviving cancer, but you also want to be realistic about what survivorship means. So how do you do that with people who are sort of in the midst of their cancer and how do you let them know, yeah, you might survive, but you're going to potentially have lots of complications. So when do you bring yeah. that up, you know? I really appreciate the question and just the acknowledgement of just how tough this is because it's yeah. not an easy thing. I firmly believe that we need to be hopeful and helpful to people going through cancer. I don't think that people struggling with chemotherapy and radiation uh, need to hear what that's likely to cause. On the other mm -hmm. hand, that's part of informed consent and at mm -hmm. least some acknowledgement of the fact that the treatment that they're being offered, right, that the best treatment that they, that in their clinician's judgment, the best treatment that to help them survive is likely to have lifelong consequences. And I don't think we should get real into that and scare everybody to death, but to deny the reality is also not a fair or, or, or not ethical, I would argue, yeah. right? Yeah. But I, I think there's been a real movement and there's been real support for the idea that when people finish, they need to be dis discharged with what's called a survivorship plan. Mm -hmm. They need to know that they need to have regular follow-up and that we now know that certain kinds of chemotherapy, for example, lead to certain kinds of heart problems and they need to be screened for those. Mm -hmm. And that certain kinds of radiation to certain areas are likely to cause breast cancer. 
and they need to be screened for breast cancer every six months instead of every year and starting at a much early age, earlier age than the average person. So this discharge survivorship plan is an excellent idea and it's advocated by many um, groups that who I, and I absolutely agree with that. But I think the most powerful thing we need to get out there, the message that I'm trying to get out there with my research and my own blog is, is that we need to be more realistic. We need to stop with the happily ever after ending, not with the triumph. You can have the triumph. We should celebrate survivorship. It is an incredible thing, but then we need to get real. The name of my blog is realisticallyeverafter.blog, and it's called that because I want to get out the story of what it's really like. I swear to God, for 10 years, I had late effects and I didn't have the word late effects. I didn't know that there was a word for what I had. I didn't know that this happened to the vast majority of cancer survivors. I honestly believed mm. that I had done a bad job surviving, oh, that wow. I hadn't done what most cancer survivors managed to pull off. Somehow, mm. I was the exception to the rule. Instead of actually, it come to find out, most people with limb salvaging end up with serious complications. We now know that. And if you're going to offer somebody a limb salvaging instead of an amputation or give them a choice, they need to know that we now have research that shows that what they're offering you is not likely to be a permanent lifelong solution, especially mm -hmm. with children who are still growing. Yeah. And we need to be realistic and say, you're an athlete. You're going to be able to do sports with an amputation. You're not going to be allowed to run ever on a salvaged leg. Right? We need to tell women who survive with breast cancer that they are very likely to have serious side effects from their treatment. We need to tell um, doctors and nurses and educators that kids who have all that high-dose chemo for, for leukemia when they're little are very likely to have learning disabilities and cognitive deficits. We need to help people. And the only way we can do that is to admit to the medical establishment, to the public at large, to advocacy groups, that realistically, you're gonna have a lot of problems afterward. And not everybody does, and bless them, I'm happy for them. But the majority of us have some kinds, and they're serious. Clinical depression rates are much higher in cancer survivors. Um, other kinds of PTSD is very common. Many of the things that they do to you, particularly in an emergency situation, just one quick example, I developed apnea, which means after surgery, I don't want to breathe. They took my morphine drip away after I'd had my leg rebuilt. And I can't describe to you in words what that pain was like, but it made me breathe. Okay, so you end up with PTSD from traumas like that. Little children are literally strapped down mm -hmm. while treatments are forced on them, and it's important. We've got to save their life. But they're likely to have PTSD for the rest of their lives, and they need help. And we need insurance companies to be honest and to be ethical about what is likely to happen to children in the years afterward. Little children who have chemo often develop serious kidney problems. Mm -hmm. So... We need to be realistic. That's the message I want to get out there. Yeah. It and sounds, it's not a message that people tend to want to hear. The, the thing I really want to ask is, looking back at your story, what do you wish clinicians would have told you? And would it have made a difference in the choices that you made? That's a great question. I wish that after the first major infection, when they had to take the bone graft out and put another one in, a temporary one in, and then 
put it back in, uh, you know, put in a, a second, uh, what was supposed to be permanent one. I wish they had said to me then, it's very likely that this will not last for the rest of your life. And when you're ready to stop having more, having surgeries, it's okay to let us know that. Mm. Instead, what I was offered it would by truly wonderful. I'm not mad at any of my surgeons. I was, I was very blessed with wonderful people. The other two surgeons I had were literally trained by the first surgeon I had in Boston. He, they went through his not only residency, but fellowship in, um, wow. in, um, uh, advanced, you know, bone cancer, uh, treatment. And, um, so they were both wonderful. Uh, all three were wonderful, but I wish they had said, realistically, Laura, you're not going to get the outcome that we wanted, but they didn't have the data then. Right. Mm -hmm. And I wish that, um, they will, I hope that they will be honest. I have heard other stories already from young people who said, I want off this train. I want an amputation. Now, <laughs> unfortunately I have to add, I thought that would be the end of my story right, and yeah. it wasn't. But it is, it is very realistic that I would not have had so much pain, so much phantom pain, if I had not lived in chronic pain for 19 years following um, my cancer treatment. <laughs> if I had not had surgery after surgery and all that degrading and breaking down of my knee, um, all that arthritis, if I had not lived in so much pain, those pain, those neural pathways in my brain might have not become so ingrained that my body didn't want to let go of them. Now, it's also possible that they wouldn't have, but for the vast majority of amputees, the pain fades and goes away within five years. So most kids, if they do opt for an amputation, um, are likely to ha to then not live with pain. Right. I think back to the, the moment when your surgeons say, you know, we can do this again, but you're going to be back. Yeah. Yeah, and that was the moment where, you know, if someone would have said something to you years earlier, might you have made a different choice? And and we don't know that because everything is speculation, right? You have no idea going back what you would have actually done. I really think that you have uh, the limitations of the healthcare system is so much bigger than any one doctor. As I said, my doctors have been fantastic people yeah. and all their support staff as well. And I think the thing is that the overall, the dominant narrative is, as you said, to always offer hope instead of offering hope and offering permission to stop, offering yeah. permission to get off the treadmill, offering permission to have a good death, to um, to go ahead and have an amputation and stop risking this. To And my doctor said, I won't stop until you're ready. But I wish that I had recognized, I know that the 20-year-old me would have done anything to save my leg. I, mm -hmm. And I know that. I would have done anything. I was as devastated about losing my hair as I was about the danger that I could die. Um, yeah. uh, now, of course, I would get a baseball hat and move on. It wouldn't bother me. But part of the reason it doesn't bother me is I've had an incredible system of friends and support. And, you know, when I had to face that decision, I was lucky enough to get to face the decision about stopping with a, uh, a life partner who said to me, I don't want you to die of staff. I don't want your leg. I want you. I want you to live. Please, mm -hmm. let's not do this anymore. Let's not take the chance that the next time will be one of those um, drug-resistant strains. Right? Mm -hmm. Let's let's not get keep doing this. And so I was able to make the decision knowing that I had a loving partner. And I, you know, just as a, a quick aside, when I met the man who is now my husband, 
Um, I had just finished treatment, so I had less than an inch of hair on my head, and I didn't have eyebrows or eyelashes. I was on crutches. I had a brace that went from my ankle all the way up to my hip. I still had tubes in my chest because my portacath had gotten infected, and I had to have a Groshon catheter that was taped to my chest. And he thought I seemed like a really interesting person. He wanted to get to know me. He thought I seemed like I had cool things to say and to share, and that I must have gone through enough that mm-hmm. I was a real strong and capable person. Yeah. And so he got to know me having already dispensed with any kind of facade that I would live happily ever after and perfectly ever after. He knew I was in some ways already damaged and he learned to love me that way. One of the really tragic things for many cancer survivors is that they're infertile. Um, And that was not a tragedy for me. I don't know whether I'm infertile because Glenn and I together chose not to have children. Uh, but for many people, that's a really tragic thing. And I just, I'm just so aware of the fact that I have a partner who accepts me as I am and wants me to live um, as much, uh, you know, as well as I can and with him, um, even if that means making some tough medical choices. Not everybody has that kind of support. And I think that that makes them reach for things like reconstruction of their breasts that they might not want themselves, right? There's a lot of pressure to be, um, to look good, right? Um, and, and some women feel much better when they have reconstruction, and I'm all for that. But I question how much that feeling better when you look good is because then you get better responses from other people. Yeah. So I, I hope for everybody to have the kind of support to make the decisions that are best for them. Yeah, and so, so um, we're, we're getting near the end, and, and I'm thinking about so the clinical world of really being open about conversations, about all of the information, being able to provide all of the different options and really have a conversation with the patient and their family um, to really help them make a decision that may not be the most quote unquote hopeful, but may actually be the best for them. What are some suggestions that you might add about or offer to them about navigating through the system and about being a cancer, about cancer survivorship? So sort of summarizing some of the things that you talked about. Sure. So a few things I'd recommend. One is um, that just as when people die um, and there's a lot of support right after somebody loses a loved one, but not a lot of support a month or two later, same thing with when cancer ends. Don't assume that that person's health journey has ended, um, that they're not dealing with any real, very real complications. Maybe try to offer some support and bring a casserole a couple months out. Um, to families that have been dealing with cancer, um, ask them um, how they're dealing with uh, follow-up health care after cancer treatment has completed. Uh, be aware that after cancer, your body is not going to feel the same that it did before, and there's a lot of hope. You will learn new normals, as Dr. Lynn Harder uh, has, calls them, you learn a new normal, a new way of being, and that that is good. If, if for clinicians working with people who are transitioning out of active cancer care, just give patients the message that they're not doing something wrong if they develop follow-up symptoms and problems, the late effects of their treatment. They didn't fail to try hard enough. They didn't fail to have a positive attitude. We fully expect there to be complications. And we, uh, some people don't have them or they don't have them for years, and that's great too. But don't feel ashamed. 
Don't feel embarrassed to call a doctor and say, hey, I'm having these problems. Also, patients need to be honest with every doctor they have after their cancer treatment that, hey, I had all this cancer treatment. And, and now that we have electronic medical records, that information may be available. But you need to remind, for example, if you have asthma, that can be caused by chemo. If you're having your heart checked out, that can be caused by, you know, the problems can be caused by radiation or other kinds of medication that can cause high blood pressure or pressures on your, uh, you know, uh, on your heart, um, or on your lungs. There's some chemos cause scarring in your lungs and, and, and long-term problems there. So helping patients to be aware and their loved ones that when you go to a new doctor, you need to just throw in there, hey, by the way, I had treatment for this kind of cancer, and that we now know that there are late effects. Primary care physicians are not um, w not given a lot of information on late effects. They're not mm -hmm. um, told to ex fully expect there to be late effects of treatment. And so it's part of, as more and more, millions and millions of people survive cancer, we need to talk about what is realistic for them. How can they live the best lives while fully needing, don't be embarrassed to say, I need mental health treatment. I, I need to have a counselor to talk to. Um, PTSD and anxiety is very real for many cancer survivors. And, 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 you, and I don't want other people to feel ashamed um, to seek out treatment. To, uh, sometimes that's a, from a psychiatrist or, or a, you know, sometimes that's a medical, like um, taking various kinds of medications. Sometimes it's a more psychotherapy oriented or both. Um, but depression and anxiety following treatment are completely normal responses. And that's what I wish I could go back and tell the 21-year-old me. This is normal. You didn't do anything wrong. Your doctors didn't do anything wrong. We're all working together, but things are going to go wrong. And when they ha when that happens, don't be afraid or ashamed to seek out treatment. Oh, thank you. That's um, a beautiful way to <clears throat> remind us not only about navigating the system, but about our own lives and our own journey. Um, speaking of support, are there any resources that you would like to offer the people who are listening? Actually, I would. There's a lot of information online now. If you put in long-term survivorship or late effects into a search engine, you'll be able to find various organizations that are actually focusing on survivorship. I participate in um, awareness and fundraising activities, and I know that if you reach out, um, you can find online support, but they can often connect you to in in-person groups as well. Um, it, you can also reach out. There are listservs for long-term survivors and uh, ways in which you can learn more, educate yourself. Major cancer centers have pages now in clinics for particularly follow-up for childhood cancer survivors um, where you can find, you can figure out which one's closest to you and these are doctors who are specifically educated in late effects who can help you know and help your local doctors manage any symptoms or issues you may be dealing with. I didn't get into some of the relational issues. Many people who've already survived cancer can find it difficult to start romantic relationships or mm -hmm. even to decide when to let friends know, hey, by the way, I 
had cancer once, you know, it's hard to know when to bring that up. And it's hard to know how to um, prepare if you want to share your body with someone else, um, that to let them know uh, the kind of scars or other uh, things that they might encounter. And um, dealing with those kind of relational challenges is something, again, that trained therapists can help you navigate, can help you figure out what your comfort level is and how to talk about those kinds of things and how to engage in disclosure that's appropriate, right? You don't want to tell every stranger you meet, but you do want friends that you, new friends, people you're getting to know. Uh, you have to be careful in work environments, unfortunately, mm-hmm. about uh, sharing some kinds of health information. And so uh, thinking about that, there's information online about people's choices about when to keep things um, private and when not to. Um, how to tell friends. I have to say that I have found my friends overwhelmingly supportive, but it was awkward when I moved to a new place, when I moved to California and became a professor. How to tell people, by the way, the reason I limp is, you know, I lived for many years. Um, now I look differently uh, with a prosthetic leg. And, um, you know, deciding when to share is your choice and um, as a survivor and same thing as family members I also want to to add that it's okay if you need support because your spouse had cancer or is surviving cancer it's okay if your your child is done with their cancer treatment but you still need someone to talk about the trauma and the effects it's had on your family sometimes mm-hmm. the whole family needs to have some support or therapy to learn how to communicate well together with the particularly when there are other children who didn't go through cancer treatment but whose whole life was upended by their siblings experiences we need to treat whole families um, and and that's part of follow-up care as well excellent, excellent. well thank you so very much for being on the podcast dr allingson Thank you for having me. It's really great to get to talk about that third narrative, right? The realistically ever after and what that would look like. And I want to remind people about the realistically ever after dot blog um, that Dr. Elliotson has. Um, If you're interested in being on the podcast or you'd like to leave a message, just as a reminder, we also have a NicoleDeffenbaugh.com slash blog website. Reminder that we are on Twitter at Stories Health. And as always, you can find us and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. Thank you again for joining us today on Cancer Survivorship. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh with Health Stories.